Folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Friday, February the 24th, 2012. Means old man winter will have his back broken by the first day of spring in less than a month now. That's the first season almost down. Are you working for liberty? I know I am because right now, today, even though you're listening to this, I recorded this on a Wednesday, and I am currently in Nashville, New Hampshire at the Liberty Forum. Hopefully some of you guys are there hanging out with me uh, instead of uh, wherever you are listening to my podcast. I want you to listen, but I hope I get to meet some of you guys. Hopefully I got to meet some of you guys last night at the uh, hotel bar as well. Uh, with that, I want to tell you today is Friday, at least for you, and that means it is a feedback show. This is where you pick up a phone and you mash numbers on the phone. The numbers you want to mash are 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You'll get a voicemail. You'll leave me a message. You get about two minutes to do that, and uh, you leave, you make your point or give me your question, uh, and you do it from a quiet area or a good cell connection or a good landline, and I try to get you on the air. I want to say something right now about this. Um, and maybe I'll mention it toward the end because I know some people will skip the beginning. One of you guys called in, and you left me two messages. The second message told me that the first one was awesome because you told me what happened. This is somebody that ended up in a deadly encounter situation with a handgun and ended up using pepper spray instead of the handgun, even though the person on the other end of this thing had a gun because of the way the situation was and was able to defuse the situation. The problem is your first call, it's not your fault, something went wrong. It was completely silent. I got two calls from the same number, one after the other. The whole first call is just dead air. And then the second call tells me what happened, but I don't have the first call. I, sir, I want you to call back. Uh, compose your thoughts. If you have to use two calls to do it, fine. Uh, but please call that one back, and I want to cover that call. I want people to hear that call. Um, I just couldn't use the second half of it, okay? Uh, now, before we go ahead and get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Been with us since there were no other sponsors. Very first company said, Jack, I want to be an official sponsor. I don't want to just give you gear to give away or whatever. I want to send you some money. I want to be an official sponsor officially associated with your show. That was about three and a half years ago. That is forever in the world of podcasts to have somebody that long. He also gives away, uh, Safe Castle Rolls run by Vic Rontala. He gives away his uh, discount buyers club. That's a huge revenue source for him. It's $50 one-time membership, big discounts on everything the guy sells for the rest of your life. He gives that away to member support brigade members. At Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you could possibly want for your prepping needs. You'll find their website at prepare.pro. Best way to find them, though, of course, is go to our website. Click on, click on their banner in the right-hand margin. Next up today, backyard food production. Look, I know we talk a lot about gardening around here, permaculture and stuff like that. But there, when you get on the ground and you start doing it, it can be confusing, it can be tough, and there are going to be setbacks. The best way to learn is not from experience. It's from the experience of others. So you can watch their mistakes, learn from their mistakes, and not make those mistakes and get further ahead in your first or second year than you would have without that. The way to do that with growing food is to see someone who's growing a huge portion of their own food in a relatively small area, even though they have quite a bit of land. 
That's backyard food production. That's Marjorie Wildcraft and her family. And if you get their DVD, Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm, that's exactly what you'll get. The ability to learn from what worked for them and what didn't work for them so that when you go to grow your own food, you can actually have success relatively quickly. There's also a tremendous number of free resources given away uh, with that DVD. The resource don't bonus DVD is probably worth the cost of the visual DVD in the first place. All right, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Hope I'm tweeting and Facebooking right now. And uh, some of you are interacting with me while I'm up there at the Liberty Conference with all those cool people. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And I'm going to do something here, one day only, only announced on the show, a sale. Yep. Uh, your first year of Member Support Brigade for 30 bucks. discount code is Liberty. Uh, it's good only today. You know what I'm going to do? I'll do it. I'll do it through the weekend. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it ends Sunday because some of you guys listen to the Friday show over the weekend. If it's next week, don't ask. I'm sorry. I wasn't planning on doing this. The spirit hit me as I'm sitting here and thinking about being up there with all those great people. And when I do an event like that, I should do something in conjunction with it. So if you want to sign up for Member Support Brigade, first year for 30 bucks, discount code LIBERTY. If you want to pay by mail with the form, just write it on the form and get your form in the mail by Monday morning, uh, and you'll be good to go. Once Monday morning comes, it's over, guys. It's done. Um, again, unplanned spur of the moment. Uh, I wasn't planning on doing another sale till probably April or May. But I'll go ahead and do that one. It will not be on the blog. It will not be on Facebook. It will not be on Twitter. It will only be here on the show for loyal listeners that have been waiting for the opportunity to get in on a deal. All right. Uh, with that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's go ahead and uh, take your first call. Hey, Jack, I'm thinking about, uh, this is Brian from New Jersey, I'm thinking about, um, like, all-terrain vehicles for for survival preparation. And uh, I'm actually looking at a couple different different items, uh, four-wheelers and such, and there's one uh, one all-terrain vehicle that comes keeps coming back to me, and uh, it's called the Rokin. Apparently uh, some military and uh, forestry services use it. Um, there's a plethora of different attachments that go on, including generators, pumps, and I'm just wondering about uh, your familiarity with it and what what you think uh, if that makes a good choice for an all-terrain vehicle for survival. All right, uh, thanks again, Jack. I uh, love your show, and I'll tune in. Thank you. This was a call I actually wanted to do last week because I have a lot of thoughts on ATV-style vehicles and what I think is best and what I think is optimum. And um, I, But when I got the call and I heard what he said, I couldn't quite make out what the word for this vehicle was. So I sent it off to the guy that I knew would know, Tim over at Old Grouch. And uh, if there's anybody that's going to know anything about vehicles, it's going to be Tim. So I sent it over there. And Tim sent it back and said, I think he's talking about Rokon, uh, R-O-K-O-N, which is basically a motorcycle with a lot of really unique features. Uh, it is a pretty amazing thing. It's got these kind of really big, uh, thick uh, tires. It's a low-squat bike. It's very lightweight. It's something that a couple guys could easily lift up onto a vehicle rack or something like that to carry. Uh, it does have a tremendous number of accessories. Uh, they sell brand new for about $6,000. It could easily carry a rider and a rider on the back if you wanted to do that. It comes with, there's trailers and stuff, but the accessories add up to cost. Um, because of these big tires, like there's a picture of a guy 
fording water that's too deep for the bike. It basically just has the bike shut off, and he's waiting, and the bike's he's just holding up the handlebars, and the bike's floating, and he's he's going across the water. I don't know how great that would really work, but uh, that's interesting that you could get it across water that's that deep. Um, so it does seem to have a tremendous amount of versatility. That said, uh, again, uh, our buddy Tim from Old Grouch is a uh, warrant officer in the military, 63 Whiskey. He's been working on vehicles for his entire life, basically, uh, military and civilian, uh, very heavily into survival-style vehicles, prepper vehicles, and here was his response on what he thought about that. So say, hey, Jack, sounds like he's talking about the Roken, Uh, two-wheel drive motorcycle. Now, keep, guys, keep in mind, two-wheel drive on a motorcycle is like four-wheel drive on a vehicle. So you got front and rear-wheel drive at Roken.com, R-O-K-O-N.com. My take is that it's a niche item. If I had a few hundred acres and wanted to just get around and keep an eye on my property, it'd be a nice toy. But for 99% of uses, a plain old four-wheeler is going to work better. A brand new four-wheeler is cheaper, will carry more if you have dealer support, and you have dealer support in most areas. The Roken has a generic Kohler engine you can find parts for around, but any other parts you will be pretty much ordering from the factory. I hate all my eggs in one basket like that. And I kind of doubt that a 7-horsepower lawnmower engine is going to last for a long while. Heck, if I was going to spend $7,000 that a new Roken costs, I could buy an old Willys Jeep, have the engine and transmission rebuilt, and have a vehicle that will go off-road well, go on-road well, carry gear or four people for less money. Then you have a practical vehicle with lots of versatility. I can't really see the versatility of this or the utility in most survival situations. If I need to go someplace, uh, this will, that an old Jeep or my CUCV won't. First question I'm asking myself is, is it really a good idea to be going here? Most people see themselves going deep in the road adventures after shit at the fan. That just seems like a good way to get hurt with nobody to help you to me. Tim, I think he's got some points. I think it's a neat item. I think if you've got money to spend and you want one, I, I wouldn't fault you for buying one. I think they are a hell of a lot of fun. I do think Tim's a little short-sighted on being able to go places with it that other vehicles would not, especially, and this, this is the thing now, I'm always of the opinion that you buy things that you can use today that will help you if things go wrong. And for something like this, I can see a lot of, if you're a wilderness adventure type, You could go places like fishing and hunting with this thing. You couldn't go with anybody anywhere else. So if you wanted it as a dedicated prepper vehicle, and its primary function was for preparedness, I don't think it would be my first choice at all. If you did do that, I would make sure that you get all of the common parts that can fail and have a backup. And if it costs you an extra thousand bucks to do that, then that's, that's the price you pay to have this vehicle. Personally, I think that your your uh, your four wheeler style vehicles, not the ones Tim's Tim's talking about, a typical four wheeler looks like a motorcycle with four wheels. I'm talking about your like your Polaris uh, mule style four wheelers and uh, and and things like that. Uh, your Rangers and, and the uh, whatnot, the ones that look almost like a little car. Two people can sit side by side. Some of them are built where four people can sit in them. They have a dump bed in the back. Uh, they have a tremendous amount of utility. I would find that a better ATV for exactly what Tim said he thought this would be good for. A couple hundred acres, I want to look after it, I want to do work with it and all. Uh, because instead of buying a trailer and have to hook a trailer up to this rockin', uh, I've got a dump bed. 
Uh, if I do want a trailer, I've got a trailer and a dump bed. So I can add a trailer. I can pull, I don't have to get the trailer that's made for this thing. I can get any trailer and pull it with that. I can go down to, um, someplace like Tractor Supply and buy, you know, a, a, a $600 or $800 plank trailer. Uh, and then I have a trailer that I can put my ATV on and take it with me when I go camping or hunting or something like that. And then I have a trailer that once I take the, the, the four-wheel drive off the trailer, I can hook the trailer up to the uh, ATV and I can, I can use the trailer with the ATV. I can build sideboards for that for, you know, some scrap lumber I can get and uh, increase its capacity. It just seems to me that this would not be my first choice, but it is really freaking cool. And if you're a person with, you know, say, you know, blue sky budget type stuff and you wanted a couple of these and their primary purpose is going to be everyday enjoyment for where you can go with them, uh, I think they are really cool for that. The accessories, I'm not as blown away by. They even have like a PTO accessory and, uh, and, and what have you. And I just think that you're talking snow chains. Um, they have, uh, you know, uh, vehicle bars. So they're cool. Uh, you know, rifle boots and, 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 uh, a back rack and, and radio racks and, uh, tire upgrades and all, but you're gonna pay for every bit of that. They even have some agricultural stuff. There's a disc plow that will work, uh, a, a, a single plow, a seed spreader, uh, trailer again, a lawnmower, three gang lawnmower, but anything you could tow behind this thing, you could tow behind any four wheeler, uh, any ATV, any UTV. So I, I just, I don't see it unless you want it for everyday use or for frequent use for wilderness adventure style stuff. And if that's what you want, I think it's very cool for that. Uh, anyway, I will put a link in today's show notes so you guys can check it out. I think it's going to be one of those things that every guy that looks at it is going to go, man, I'd like to have one, but... And then you're going to say, but I'm going to go get one, or but there's all these other things that actually are better for what I really need. That's just my gut. Um, but if anybody has one and anybody loves theirs, if anybody actually uses one a lot and want to come on the air, even like instead of a full show, like a 15-minute segment, and just talk about it a little bit, get in touch with me. Um, if you want to do a full interview, fill out the interview form, the guest form on the, on the, on the site. Uh, if you just want to come on for like 15 minutes or something, shoot me an email. We'll work you in somewhere on the show, like maybe a Friday show. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's uh, Evan in Austin. I was wondering if you were familiar with uh, keyhole gardening. It appears to be uh, similar to hugel culture and uh, enables you to water from the bottom. Uh, just like to know your thoughts on it and uh, if you know anyone who's tried it. Thanks. Uh, I'm very familiar with the concept of keyhole gardening, and unless you're calling it something it isn't and you're referring to something I've not heard of, yes, but you've got it wrong. And I don't mean to put it like insulting or anything. I'm just you've, you've, you've got a con some, some point of confusion. Keyholing is actually a very common permaculture technique, and it's not about watering or irrigation at all. It's simply a raised bed configuration. Uh, that I don't know how you would get to where you could water from the bottom. I guess let's describe what it is, and I could figure a way that you could actually use the keyhole to create from the bottom irrigation with additional surface runoff. Basically, what you're building, building when you do a keyhole garden is a semicircle, semicircle raised bed, and then it's almost shaped like a horseshoe. So you've got this keyhole that goes into it. So you bring the circle, half a circle, three quarters, whatever you want, and then you create kind of a keyhole dimension into it. 
And what I mean by that is the raised bed walls actually go around and then they keyhole in and they come back out. I'll put a link so you can see what this looks like, folks, if you're having trouble visualizing it. But when I explain why you do it, you'll probably get a good idea if you haven't seen it before. So what happens now is I've got this huge raised bed and I, you know, if I do reach over beds where I can reach from both sides, I still have this point in the middle that's very hard to get to. There's certain things from the sides. So if I want to really maximize accessibility in a raised bed, if I do this keyhole thing, I can access the whole radius of the semicircle from that side. When I come around and I, when I walk up into the keyhole, so this is a, this is a dimension that's big enough for a human being to walk in, generally about two to three feet in width that this keyhole is, I can access everything across the backside of it. So it's almost like a horseshoe shape. Uh, but it's not quite that defined usually. It could be. It certainly could be, and that would qualify as a keyhole. And there's a bunch of different ways to do them. Now, watering from the bottom. Done right with terracing and allowing a downflow and hard packing the keyhole, you could allow excess runoff that didn't fall on top of the garden to run down that keyhole and water from the bottom. And that might be what the caller's talking about. But that would be highly situational. Is the land laid out so that that can be done? And if so... It's a great way to reduce irrigation requirements. It's not like culture, but there's absolutely nothing that would prevent somebody from building a culture bed in a keyhole design. Uh, but keyholing is, is highly used in permaculture, mostly for decorative uh, uh, edible gardening. So you might have a whole line of keyhole beds along one property line with all types of herbs and flowers and veggies and perennials and annuals and all kinds of stuff like that. And you can just walk in and you can get all this access. And because you can, you can design a keyhole bed to be pretty accessible only from the keyhole, you could actually use and, and build you know dozens and dozens of them to kind of create kind of a, uh, a fence line, so to speak, And you don't even really need to go around the other side if you design them right. You could do everything from the keyhole. And if you do it right again, you can divert water into that keyhole and get some irrigation effect. But it's not about irrigation. It's about accessibility. Again, if you're having any trouble uh, visualizing this, go to the show notes today, and there'll be a link there for keyhole gardening so you can just see what it looks like. Or just go to Google and type in keyhole garden, and you'll find millions of results on them. And if you're talking about something else, caller, get back with me and let me know. Um, If you're getting back with me for this caller, the best way to make sure I see it quickly so I can do a follow-up on it for you, send me an email, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, and put Keyhole Garden follow-up. Uh, if I've answered your question, we'll just let it go there. All right, let's see another call. Hey, Jack. How you doing? This is Eric from uh, New York City. Uh, recently, I bought uh, 12 acres down in Virginia, and I got it perked for a uh, septic system, and it didn't pass a conventional perk uh, test, so it was not slated for a conventional perk, which actually turned out to be a blessing because I've looked into uh, constructed wetlands for wastewater septic systems. If you could talk a little bit about uh, septic systems and uh, what the advantages of a constructed wetland system is, uh, I would appreciate it. Thanks for the show. Keep up the good work. This is another topic I would love to get a true expert on. If anybody out there is, is an expert in this topic, or I know a lot of times people don't like to hear themselves called an expert. So if anybody out here has a, a large amount of experience in actually doing constructed wetlands for waste removal, uh, either for humans or animals, because it's basically done the same way, and a lot of this is being done now to deal with things like cattle, 
Uh, and the runoff that they create when they're grazed in an improper manner and they put a huge amount of waste in one area over a short period of time, uh, it, and it gets into the groundwater, gets into the surface water, especially causes huge nitrogen spikes, causes algal blooms, causes all kinds of problems. And by building these constructed wetlands, it solves a lot of these problems. From a standpoint of a homestead, I believe that they're highly preferable to an underground septic tank. Everybody that owns a septic tank knows that things can go really, really wrong with them, and it's very expensive to fix when it happens. There's a lot of things you can do to help avoid that, like controlling what goes into your toilets and what goes into your drains. And uh, adding beneficial bacteria is, is something that some experts say it's pointless and some experts say it's a great idea. And I look at it as it costs me about five bucks a month to do. So, you know, I dump a box of that in every month into ours. And we've never had a problem with ours. And we've always done that. So there, there are people that would tell me, well, Jack, uh, if you take vitamin C every day of your life and you don't get cancer, it doesn't mean the vitamin C is what kept you from getting cancer. It means you didn't get cancer. And, and I, I can see some wisdom there. I also can see it's five bucks, dude. Um, so I, I don't know. I, it's called Riddix or something like that. We, 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 we dump in there once a month and we keep that on hand and we keep it as part of our preps. But we, we realize that something could go wrong. And the fact that we have always had a fairly small household is probably another reason we've never had any bad luck with our septic tanks. We had at one time a household of three. Now we have a household of two. We don't put a huge burden on our septic tank. We use, uh, detergents that are that are not supposed to harm septic systems as well and what have you. Um, so we haven't any problems. But the potential's there. And I believe a constructed wetland has far less potential for catastrophic failure. And if you're in a, a time where you can't just phone somebody up with a backhoe to come there and you know fix your septic tank for you, uh, you'd be much better off. It also, to me, seems more environmentally friendly, though I find septic tanks, unless they're in areas where you cannot put a septic tank for some reason, like this color, and there's worse places. There's a lot of islands that people put these septic tanks on. Uh, it's destroying things because there's basically a lens of freshwater uh, water table floating on top of the salt water that's directly under the, the island. And it, it causes incredible amounts of grief in those uh, environments or anywhere that's similar to that. So there's places where environmentally it's just not good to do a septic tank. But to me, if that means that this works better there, then this works better everywhere. There are also some things that come from it. You get kind of a staging system. What this does is there's multiple beds and multiple reed beds that the, the, the wastewater percolates through, and it becomes less and less contaminated as it comes down. So your first stage is nothing but reeds, and those reeds are going to be something that's completely inedible, something you would never do anything with, but when you cut it, you get tremendous amounts of mulch. And then you can use that as organic matter mulch. And then you can, as you go down, when you eventually come out the last uh, layer of it, you actually have an irrigation source where you could grow some things that are not in contact with the ground just to be safe, like you know fruit trees, shrubs, and things like that, perennials that are up off the ground. So I, I think that it offers a, a lot of additional uh, functional outputs takes less um, high cost and, and high, uh, high energy input to do. It's a, you need a little bit more space to do, but if you have the space, it makes sense. It's something people are going to see, so there's this, you know, it looks like a marsh, basically. But then that's the other thing, you're creating a marsh habitat. So you're creating another biozone, another bioregion on your property. Uh, done properly, they don't have odors or stink or any kind of problems like that. They're not a, they're not a risk or anything like that. 
in many uh, third world countries, one of the things that permaculturists are doing when they go in is not just teaching people to grow food, but building things like constructed wetlands so that they can deal with their waste. I think it's something we need to know more about. It's something I want to know more about, but I have zero practical experience with. So I can give you the thoughts that I gave you. Again, if somebody's been doing this and, and has done this, uh, please get in touch with us. Go on the website, fill out the guest submission survey. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. You'll see a link at the top that says guest. Click on that. There's a form. Fill that out. And Dorothy will get in touch with you and get you in the queue. And anybody that wants to be on the show, man, it's an open invitation at all times. I will tell you right now, we're booking in April. We're booking into April and May at this point. Uh, but we might need to do some kind of like a, an interview blitz right before I go to, uh, to Montana in May. So we might work some more people in. Anyway, that's all I've got on that one because that's all I know on the subject. I will put some informational links on Constructed Wetlands in the show notes today for you guys. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Chris here in Midland, Texas. Just want to let you know that I've had a lot of success over the last uh, two to three years with sprouting seeds with compact fluorescent lights. As long as you keep them within a couple of inches, they do a really good job at sprouting just about any kind of seed that I've put in the garden, everything from tomatoes to peppers to amaranth, um, okra, all number of things. So as a cheaper alternative to getting a grow light, CFLs may be the way to go. Thanks for the show. Hey, Jack, this is Chris in Midland, Texas again. I also wanted to add that while growing plants under compact fluorescent lights, uh, they have a tendency to grow rather short, but they build a rather stocky um, plant, and they'll grow multiple leaves and such. And again, as long as you keep the compact fluorescent light within a about an inch or two of the plant, it'll it'll grow at a fairly moderate rate. And then when I transplanted them outside, they seem to do really well with the transplant. So again, like I said, just wanted to add that as an alternative to using grow lights uh, for cost savings. Again, Jack, thanks for the show. Well, I don't I don't disagree, but I'm also looking at what is the real cost versus a, a, you know kind of a, a fluorescent grow light that you can get at you know Walmart for like with the fixture for like ten to fifteen dollars. And, and the reason is, even if I can get a CFL for, let's say, two bucks, to put enough of them in an arrangement to cover as many seedlings as one bar light, one tube light, I need quite a few of them. And I'm almost, and then by the time, then I need fixtures and, and, and what have you. Now, I guess if I'm going down to Goodwill or I'm going to uh, habitat stores and just getting light fixtures and tearing them apart, uh, for a couple bucks, maybe this works. Um, if you, it depends on how many seedlings you're starting and what what not. But to me, the tubes just work better from an efficiency standpoint. But sure, a CFL is going to do okay with seedlings. Let me talk to you a little bit about the second part of the call, which is the bigger reason I made sure to include this call this week. Short, stocky seedlings with lots of leaves is exactly what your goal is with your seed starting. Long, spindly, you know, few-leaf seedlings are not what you want. You want stocky, mean-ass little seedlings. You want, like, think about a boxer, right? None of your boxers are seven foot tall. You get a, you get a guy, you know, that's like a, a high-end middleweight, you know, midweight to, to light heavyweight that's about five, six. He's just a mean little guy, man. Tough, hard to hit, hard to knock down. That's what you want from your seedlings. It's stocky, mean-ass attitude, right? And, one of the reasons he's getting that result from CFLs, and you could do this with any grow light system and get the same result, is having the close proximity of the light to the plant. Because the light's right there, the plant has two things that it wants, warmth and light, and it doesn't have to go very far to get it. 
So it sits there and it puts its effort into developing its infrastructure instead of reaching for the light. When you're, when you're doing seedlings, you kind of want to make the roots reach, but you don't want the top to have to reach very much at first. You want it to be content where it is. You want to create a microenvironment that's very similar to its native habitat so that it can get big and strong and tough and build a foundation of roots and strong infrastructure. And then when you put it out into a garden, then it says, okay, now's the time and it takes off. So that's why you're getting that result, and that's why it makes a lot of sense, even with professional expensive grow light systems, to get your lights down very, very close to your seedlings. It's not about giving them enough light. It's about giving it to them in a way that will get the result you want. And tough, stocky, mean-ass little plants, that's what you want. When you put a tough, stocky, mean-ass little plant into the ground, cutworms get out of the ground and they go, hmm, there's a stock, and they take one thing, no, that's not what I want. I want nice, soft, weak, and it goes somewhere else and looks for something else. And a lot of pests feel that way. And that gives a plant its opportunity to establish itself during that transplant. Wanted to point something else out. I just got uh, this new uh, new month's uh, Mother Earth News. Picked it up at a newsstand. And uh, haven't really read it yet. And, you know, Mother Earth News, some of the stuff I really love, some of it I'm like, come on, give the liberal politics a rest. We're talking about homesteading here. Um, but one guy had a tip in there that I thought was awesome. What he does is when he cooks his eggs now, instead of just cracking them in half, he takes a knife with a serrated edge and he cuts the top off the egg. He said this takes a while to get used to, but basically leaving at least three-quarters of the egg or more, and he kind of saws it and knocks the top off and then dumps the egg out and cooks with it like he normally will, uh, rinses them out, puts a hole in the bottom using a needle, and this is very similar. Like grandmother used to do these blown eggs. And uh, it's kind of a Ukrainian thing that she would she would make two holes instead of doing what this guy did and blow the egg out and then paint it with wax. It was gorgeous the the, the amazing things these Ukrainian women did with these eggs. And uh, but so it's similar to that, but you're only making one hole and you're cutting the top off the egg and actually using the egg for food. And then he saves these up all year. You what the hell's he doing with this? He puts potting soil in them and starts his seedlings in there. Nature's little starter pot. So, and the beautiful thing is you could take uh, egg crates, put holes at the bottom so they'll drain, uh, or even, I, that's what he said to do, but I'm like, you know, you could water from the bottom with that. And uh, just fill your egg crates up and let them, you know, wick water up. And when it's time to transplant them, you don't even take them out of the egg. You roll the egg in your hand till the shells all crack a little bit, and you plant it straight into the ground, and the roots just find their way out, and the eggs break down. You're adding calcium to the soil. Uh, you're getting free transplant containers. And I imagine like the first time you do this, you're probably going to get egg everywhere and be pissed off. But I would bet you within a couple, three or four tries, you'll get to where it's easy and it'll be no different than opening eggs in general. And you get all the potting, uh, little pots for free. Uh, you save your egg crates and you get your, your trays for free and you're doing, you know, a, a, you know, you're doing great service to your soil and you know that every plant you put in the ground sure as hell isn't going to be deficient in calcium. Uh, and when, if you crack that shell with you, just by rolling it in your hands, um, it's going to get very, very brittle and it's going to, it's going to break down very, very quickly. So there you go. I wanted to add that in. Uh, good call. I would not fault anybody for using CFLs. I've seen people use, uh, rope LED lights as well with, with, with pretty good success, which surprised me the first time. Um, I don't think it matters as long as you get full spectrum light close to your plants and give them the environment they want. Let's take another call. Uh, real quick, actually on this next call, you're going to hear two callers in a row. Uh, when you hear the subject that both of them bring up, you'll see why I just played them both in a row and responded to them uh, equally. So you'll hear two callers here and a uh, pretty cool subject. Hey, Jack, this is Mike from Virginia. 
this whole uh, Starbucks thing on Valentine's Day has got me thinking. My family's always given out $2 bills as uh, kind of a Christmas gift, thing, sort of a unique thing. Well, I'm wondering if uh, we shouldn't maybe start giving out $2 bills or carrying $2 bills as cash as a, a general fine to support the, uh, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and, and what this country was founded on. You know, it, it never occurred to me that the signing of the Bill of Rights is on the back of the $2 bill, but what a great way to start a conversation with people about liberty and, and our rights by handing them something unique like a $2 bill and, and have them take a look at the back. Just a thought. See ya. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Dave up in Minneapolis. Um, I've been listening to you talk about the $2 bill at Starbucks on uh, Valentine's Day, and I think for people in our community, $2 bill is a good thing to carry around because it's got Thomas Jefferson on it. And, of course, he was opposed to central banking, and now our Federal Reserve is using his likeness to legitimize their money. So just something for us to think about. Um, at home right now, making some soap. I just got my tomato seeds planted this week. Thank you so much for the show. Take care. Bye. And once again, the audience is in sync. Uh, that call, first call came in, then there was one other call you'll hear next, and then that second call came in. So they almost came in back-to-back. And uh, I, I want to add to what I said earlier with this that uh, I, I mentioned this on a show previously that the two dollar for two two bucks uh, appreciation day we did at Starbucks for Valentine's Day uh, the the gun hating group that's boycotting Starbucks has said they weren't just boycotting on on February fourteenth they're boycotting period. Um, so I said, from now on, I'm going to carry twos, and every time I end up in Starbucks, I'm going to use those twos at Starbucks and continue to tell them that I support uh, their company's decision to support the Second Amendment. We'll continue to be their customer as long as they do that. Um, but I love what these two callers are suggesting. Maybe we just need to be making this part of our general thing anyway. I mean, we should all be carrying cash, and I don't like to carry too many large bills, But you know, and I don't. But I also don't like having like a huge wad of money. And twos are as good as money anywhere because they are money. And if I carry, let's say, I want to carry forty dollars in in low, you know, less than fives, I can carry twenty uh, twos, or I can carry forty ones. Forty ones is a big wad of money. Even if I want to carry twenty dollars in low denomination bills, ten twos is half of the twenty ones. Maybe we can still carry some ones and what have you. But uh, I think it's we need to carry cash anyway. We need to have cash in reserve anyway. Um, I think we should all be spending cash uh, as opposed to using credit cards and even debit cards except where they're necessary because I think it helps us keep a better control on our spending. So why not make $2 bills part of the equation? Um, I did hear that some people were having trouble finding them, but uh, I went to two different banks to get some and both said, yeah, we got plenty of those. How many you want? Um, so I think what I'm going to do is uh, the next time I feel I need to add a little uh, stockpile of cash to my safe deposit box or to my firebox, I'll do it in $2 bills and create a little pile there. And from now on, when I start, when I get cash from the bank, uh, I'll request, you know, let's say a handful of twos and make it part of my everyday carry, my everyday cash carry. Uh, just not a bad idea overall and a good way to, uh, to spread the message of freedom in the Second Amendment. And, uh, I tell you why I think it's a great idea. I think in many instances, a lot of times when you're dealing with retail clerks and retail people, you're dealing with young people. You're dealing with young, you're dealing with people. Now, I know there's people that are 35, 45 years old, still running cash register, not putting you down, but a lot of times you're dealing with young people, especially in food service operations and things like that. I think a lot of them have never seen a $2 bill. 
I think when you tell them, they'll find it interesting. I think when they look at the artwork on the back of it, they'll find it interesting. I think a lot of them, and I've heard from people that this happened with Starbucks, will take $2 in ones, two George Washingtons, and put them in their cash drawer out of their own pocket and keep the two and take it home. And then I think one day, maybe 10 years down the road, when they're kind of going, you know, I want to make a difference, and they go through, a lot of times when you get nostalgic, you go through kind of things you've put away, they'll find it, and maybe they'll remember that you handed it to them. Uh, remember, things like Ron Paul running for president. By the way, he said he might, he would, high on his list of VPs if he got the nomination would be uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano. I think that was awesome. I heard that this morning. Um, but people like Ron Paul, it, Ron Paul's not about so much, you know, will he get elected? It's the movement that's been started. Uh, a lot of the movements, some that I agree with and some that I don't, it, it's not about tomorrow. It's about next year and the next five years and the next ten years. Uh, a lot of, you know, look at it this way, guys. We've taken 225 years of apathy to take the gift that was given to us by our founders and and basically ruin it. It's going to take more than a year or an election cycle to put it back, a lot more. And there's so much entrenched there. We need to be planting as many seeds as we can. And things like AOCS rounds, things like $2 bills, they're very simple, and it's money you're going to spend anyway. And all it takes is saying something when you spend it that you normally wouldn't say, just like, hey, you know why, why I carry these around? Because I support the Constitution, I support the Second Amendment, and I support our founders' views. And take a look at the back. There's our declaration being signed. Maybe you want to hang on to that one and throw a couple ones in the drawer and maybe do a little research as to what it's all about. Maybe some little enterprising entrepreneur, who hell knows, maybe even me, builds a website about $2 bills and what the whole movement's about. And then you say, when you get a two, go to this domain, and you'll find out what the bill's about. Maybe we even develop a $2 bill serial tracking website. If anybody wants to do that, don't think you're stepping on my toes. Go ahead and do it, and let me know. I'll promote the hell out of it for you. All right, with that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Ben from San Antonio, Texas. I just want to say hi. I love the show. I've been listening for three or four years now. But uh, I just want to let you know a little bit. I think you were wrong when you were talking about the war in Iraq, that the, the government didn't know there was WMDs the whole time. I was actually there in 03 and then collecting intel on the ground as a Marine in the infantry. And the people that we met and the intel that we grabbed said that uh, Saddam thought he actually had the weapons. And we kind of surmised out of that, kind of like they did in the Russians. And the guys that were duped in our government should know better because it happened in the late 80s with the Russians. But Saddam was having said, I want weapons of mass destruction. And when his guys said, no, I can't have it, he just shoot the first guy that said no. So eventually, his guys under him started manufacturing whatever evidence he wanted so he would see that they had weapons of mass destruction. Well, our intel people were reading over Saddam's shoulder the whole time, seeing the evidence that he, had, that he did that they had weapons of mass destruction. So I think that's where that came from. And on the, should we have been there or not, after being there and doing it, sir, there was evil that was untold in that government, and it just had to go. There was no other way around that. The, the things that I saw, the things that they did, and some of the things that I heard are just unthinkable, and some of it unspeakable. It, it was evil that was perpetuating evil that was growing evil. It, it was just... it. I still can't think, they can't talk straight about some of it. But I love your show. Thanks for what you do. 
let you know that I'm turning into a prepper. I really appreciate it. Well, I've heard a variety of things, and this is one of the more credible ones that I've heard. I've heard a lot of people give me similar stories but say the, the, the weapons of mass destruction were there and we guarded them until they were taken away and then we, there was never revealed. I, 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 don't, I don't believe those reports. All those reports come from people that don't want to tell me who they are. I'm an unnamed source, and that's usually not very credible. Uh, but this makes, and this is actually not far off from what I said, that Saddam's posturing to the, his surrounding nations that he was afraid of being invaded by his enemies was, yes, I do have this, even though weapons inspectors were saying, no, he didn't, and he didn't want to appear vulnerable. Now, you want to add in that he was lied to by his own people because he would shoot people in the head. I'll buy that. I'm not, I've never said the man was a good guy at all, uh, though he was a U.S. ally in technicality at one time because the enemy of our enemy was our friend. Um, here's my thing about, you know, we had to do this. It, it had to stop. It had to be curtailed. It had to be controlled. First of all, you know me. I'll, I'll never put down any of our service members. And I'm not saying that the world is not a better place without Saddam Hussein. The reason Bush fell back to that and used it over and over and over and over and over and over again whenever challenged on anything to do with the war was because it's really hard to argue with. It's really hard to argue with. And I do believe that the Iraqi nation is better off today than it was before the war. But I also believe that probably 100,000 or more Iraqi civilians were killed in the entire conflict starting from George Bush Sr., Bombings under Clinton, George Bush Jr. If a nation wants its freedom and is willing to dedicate its own lives to that freedom and give its own lives to that freedom, that's their choice. I don't know if it's our choice to go in and decide, yeah, 100,000 year people are going to die that really didn't do anything, but it's worth it for all the ones that don't. And, and that's kind of the decision that we made. And I, I'm not the guy to tell you whether this is right or wrong. I'm not sitting on the military intelligence to make this decision. I don't believe that everything we're told by our government is true, and I don't believe that everything that we're told is also untrue. I believe the truth generally lies somewhere in the middle. I do believe there's a lot of people that think war is profitable. Uh, I think we're hell-bent on a war with Iran right now. I think it's a very, very dumbass thing to do. And I understand and accept the evil nature of much that went on within Iraq, but I'll always say things like, okay, then do we invade Darfur? And there's plenty of other places in the world with corruption and evil and murder, and do we invade those? And do you think, for a minute, this nation would have invaded Iraq if there was no oil in the Middle East? I'm not going to even answer that. That's up to us to answer for ourselves. I think that we've gone there and we've done what we've done, and now it behooves us to basically say to the Iraqi people, now stand. And it is time for our people to come out of there. And I know they say we did, but there's still 50,000 contractors there or some, some ridiculous number like that, uh, and not contractors that are just running backhoes, guys. I'm talking about contractors with guns. And, um, you know, I... I don't know the answer to this one, and it's not my place to be the answer to this one. I just know that... There's a lot of forces in our nation who have convinced the American people time and time again that we needed a war, and in the end, they've said, well, it was still a good war, but the reason we said we were going didn't really happen or didn't happen the way we said it did. World War One, sink into Lusitania. German government advertises, don't do this, guys, we'll sink the ship. They sink the ship, and then we go, hey, we didn't, you know, this is an act of war. Come on. 
Pearl Harbor. Um, God, the, the, the Japanese were provoked at every opportunity by Roosevelt because he wanted into the war. Um, and people say, well, how did he do that? Well, if you are going to say that you're neutral and not al aligning with either side in a war, then you don't give either side preferential treatment. So one of the things that the United States did, in fact, in spite of the fact that we were in our own depression and our own people were doing that, was loan money to forces aligned against Japan at a lower interest rate than we did right to Japan. So we made them pay more for access to the money than other people did under, under certain things that Roosevelt did. And uh, then, of course, we had the Australians like, hey, mate, there's a whole shitload of Japanese people and carriers and crap heading like towards you guys. And then we just sat there like nothing happened and got bombed. And now next thing we're in World War II, the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, we sat there and fired for hours at ships that were never there and never fired at us. Hey, so if if we weren't misled about Iraq intentionally, it would be the exception to the rule rather than the standard of the rule. And I'm not here to tell you conspiratorial crap like Alex Jones. I'm not. I'm not here to radically get the American people up in arms and pissed off at everybody. I'm here to help people be prepared. But I'm also here to help people determine the truth for themselves. And I think in these big issues like this, We don't need anybody telling us what the truth is. We need to take all the information and determine the truth for ourselves. So whether a person that served or did not serve agrees with me or not on my overall stance is far less important than does that person know why they believe what they believe. And for those of you that have not served and are not going to serve and have no family members currently serving that say we should go do this, I'll ask you, would you put the uniform on, and would you go do it, and would you risk your own ass doing it? And if you're going to answer yes to that, my, my next question is going to be, then why aren't you doing it? And if you're 80 years old, I understand. But it's very easy to say something should be done when it doesn't call on personal sacrifice for yourself. And I think that every single person that lends their voice to using military intervention should do two things before they make that final decision. One, you should put yourself in the boots of the soldiers that will fight and die because you said yes. And two, you should put your soul, yourself into the shoes or onto the shoeless uh, streets of the nation we'll be doing it in, not as the enemy, but as the people that were there to supposedly help and say, would I really want this? Would I be really willing to do this? And if you can't answer yes to both of those things, then maybe it's not a good idea. With that, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is John in West Virginia. I had a tree to fall on my garage the other day, and I have three chainsaws. And I went out there to cut the tree off my garage, and not one of my three chainsaws would start. So it taught me a pretty good lesson, but. I need to stabilize the fuel and make sure they're around. Keep good sharp chain. Appreciate it, man. Later. 
John, brother, where the hell you been, man? I mean, it's been a long time since we've heard from you. Uh, I, when, I, when I was screening calls this morning for the show, I was like, I, as soon as I heard your voice, I got a chuckle, and I just felt like an old friend called me from long ago. So thanks for calling. Your, your comments are very true. Chainsaws and any other small engine are one of the ones that have a propensity to become gummed up and, and, and gucked up worse than just about anything else. Very small amounts of fuel in them, and that ends up, you know, using the same fuel for a very long time. Um, you can drain them rather than store the fuel in them, and that can help some. But here's the reality of any engine, whether it's a chainsaw or a race car. Almost the worst thing that can happen to any engine is for it to sit for a very long time and not be run. Um, engines are designed to run, and they begin to degrade from not being used after a certain point almost faster than being used. Now, that doesn't mean that if you take a car and you put 4,000 miles a year on it, that it's not going to be in better shape five years down the road than a car that you put 60,000 miles a year on. But if you take a car that you put zero miles on, uh, especially after it's been used, let's say you put 12,000 miles on it and stick it in a garage and just leave it sit there, um, especially with oil in it, fuel in it, you know, Man, it'll, it'll start to go downhill. So the biggest thing for your chainsaws, your weed eaters, everything like that, you need to have like a schedule. Like every third Saturday, you go start them all. And any that don't start, you tinker with until they start. And any you can't fix, you take to someone and have them fixed for you. And any they can't fix, you replace. And uh, because a chainsaw is something you can rely on, uh, in, a, in a lot of situations, you're really going to need it. It's also why I believe in a lot of backup stuff, too. Uh, there's certain things only a chainsaw will do for you. But I'm a huge believer in the Sawzall. Uh, and they're electric, and they don't have all the mechanical problems that chainsaws can have from time to time. Uh, also, a big believer in redundancy, and you can go out and get like one of these, uh, I don't know what the hell they're called now, they call them like a wild thing, I don't remember who, Pullen I think makes them, with a 16-inch bar at Walmart for like $105. And what I will tell you about a chainsaw is if it's never been run, it can sit on the shelf for decades and it's just fine. It's only once it's been run, once it's, you know, when it comes from the factory and it's sprayed and it's all good to go, and it's only been run real quick to test it, uh, It'll probably start 10 years from now, as long as it's kept dry and safe. So um, you might, in some instances, once a lot of the other preps are knocked out, want to do something like pick up a saw like that and just stick it somewhere safe and always have it as the absolute you know, bottom and backup. When it comes to buying a saw, if you're actually investing in something you want to last a long time, uh, I believe that there is the steel, that it, it is the absolute best saw made, And there's the Husqvarna, which is number two. And I think everything else is a distant, distant third. And I think the Husqvarna is a damn good saw, and it's on the edge as being as reliable and as good as the steel. Um, and it costs so much less that it's a better value. And that's why I've personally settled on Husqvarna for myself. Extra chains, uh, oil, sharpening stone, toolkit, uh, and backup parts. If there's anything that commonly fails in your saw... I have an older model Husqvarna that uses a screw that this, they don't have on the new models anymore that's part of the tensioning of the chain, and they've changed that design. That screw can, on, on, on occasion, vibrate loose, fall onto the ground, and you're never going to find it in a pile of, uh, of sawdust because you probably won't even realize it until you're like five cuts later and the tension begins. You go to adjust the tension on your chain back, and it's, it's gone. Um, so that was a screw that when I had it fixed and I couldn't even get, Husqvarna couldn't even tell me what screw it was. Uh, 
So I had to take it to an authorized service place, and then they did it, and we got a couple extra screws so that if that falls out again, I can replace it myself. I mean, anything like that on your saw, make sure you have it. Extra plugs. Um, just wire brush clean plugs. A lot of times the saw that won't start, uh, you take the carburetor uh, apart, clean it, stick it back on there, uh, clean the plug, put that back on, it'll start. A lot of times it, 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 you can just pull the plug, dip it in a little gasoline, hit it with a wire brush, um, and, and put it back in, and, and it'll start for you. Uh, sometimes, you know, right before you put it back in, dip it in the gas again, give it a little uh, kickstarter there. A lot of times that'll help you. Um, but, yeah, definitely make sure you're starting anything with a motor at least once a month and letting it run for a little bit. Doesn't mean you got to go use it, but start it, run it, put it through its paces, and, God, especially in small motors, folks, stabilize gas. You got to do it, and if you don't use, like if you get through like six months, eight months, a year, and you really haven't used that piece of equipment at all, drain the fuel, use it for starter fluid and bonfires or something, clean it out, replace it, put new stabilized fuel in it. Um, I actually do like storing those type of motors with fuel in the tanks so that if they're needed, they can be called on immediately. And I'm not out, you know, if I'm out in the dark trying to get a tree off the house and I've got some kind of catastrophe going on, I can just fire it, you know. Anyway, good call, John. Good to hear from you again. Don't let it be so long before you call back in, John. We uh, we love you around here. Let's take another call. Yeah, Jack. I've been an urban farmer for a number of years now, and uh, I live in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm wondering, how safe is it to eat the meat from city rabbits and city squirrels? We have a proliferation of them lately, and I'm going to eliminate them, and I'd like to eliminate them and make use of the protein at the same time. So... Uh, thanks for your advice in advance. I mean, in general, I would say, unless you're a person that's so concerned with your health that you eat only 100% organic or better food, don't even worry about it, because I promise you a squirrel in a city park is healthier for you to eat than a chicken from a Tyson chicken farm. Plain and simple. Unless you do something wrong in the processing of the meat, or you, you know, like like you, you shoot it and you leave it sit in the sun for like eight hours before you skin it, that would be ways that you could cause problems. But in general, let's look at the, just the two different animals and, and, and the reality behind them. Rabbits are vegetarians, and rabbits are generally afraid of human beings. Rabbits generally stay afraid of human beings, so they don't think do things like start learning to hang out in parking lots of McDonald's and eat like wasted McDonald's french fries and stuff like that. Rabbits primarily are going to eat green material. And unless they're in a place where there's highly toxic chemicals being sprayed, where they're getting their green material from, there's probably, you know, is it as good as eating a rabbit off a mountaintop? No, but it's pro or a farm? No. That's probably pretty good. You're also probably noticing that most of the stuff they're eating is what you're growing, and you're growing it safely and sustainably, so that makes it better quality meat. Um, you might even find yourself deciding that you don't want to eliminate all of them, but you might want to control the population, and you might find yourself planting patches of things like sweet clover and alfalfa specifically for them and allowing them to use that resource. And if you give rabbits clover... Uh, and alfalfa, uh, they'll pretty much leave everything else that you're growing alone. I, I always laugh when people tell me they have co problems with cottontails because it, for years I never even understood why. And, and here's what I'm talking about. As a, as a young kid, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, learning about gardening from my grandfather, every spring and summer, 
every evening. I would sit on the porch with him damn near, unless I was fishing. And we'd sit there and we'd watch, and rabbit after rabbit after rabbit would show up. And uh, they'd be all over the field, all the way down to where the garden was. And almost none of them ever went into the garden. It'd be one or two, and they never even seemed to bother anything while they were in there. And I never even worried about rabbits being in the garden. I'd hear people talk about it. I just didn't get it. And I, I never even asked him about it. But I know what he would have told me now because I know what was what was going on there. The entire lawn was made up of a mixture of grass and, and, and white clover. And those rabbits love that clover so much, they, you know, they're not going to go in there and try to figure out what part of the broccoli plant they actually like or try to dig up a carrot when they were sitting there with all that clover. So that's one way to control them. And the more they're eating of what you give them, the more they're not eating of anything else. Squirrels are a little different. You got to look a little bit more if you really are concerned with the quality at where they're getting their food. The majority of squirrels in urban America eat mostly acorns and black oil sunflower seed out of bird feeders. In that case, um, it's the quality of the feed. And, you know, black oil sunflower is not generally a highly GMO-style crop. It's not something that's generally sprayed a lot. It's, uh, it's pretty much a feed crop that's planted in interims, and it's pretty easy to grow, and it's not going to be organic. You know, generally people aren't worried about organic bird seed. Uh, but I wouldn't hesitate to eat a squirrel that's been feeding on that. Now, if you have like a McDonald's right next door and you see these fat little gray squirrels constantly like begging for people to eat in the driveway to throw them french fries and coming out of the dumpster with a, you know, dragging a, a, you know, a half a, a, a cup of fries where another squirrel chases them and stuff like that, they'll eat stuff like that. A squirrel is basically a rat that can climb a tree with a bushy tail. And they'll eat things a rabbit never will. So there's a little more concern there. But unless it's to that extreme, I wouldn't even worry about it. And uh, again, I think that you can do things to maybe provide some feed for them as well. Now, I have to say some other stuff. One, make sure you're following the law. Uh, rabbits and squirrels, cottontails and gray squirrels, fox squirrels, red squirrels, are generally considered game animals in every state that they exist in. Um, I know a very few localized ordinances that, that give an exemption for them as pests. There are some, but I don't think you probably have that in Cleveland. There's rules for how they can be dispatched. So make sure you're following all local laws. And with rabbits, generally the rule is you shoot them or kill them in months that end in R to avoid uh, large uh, issues with worms, specifically rabbit warbles, which are a large blowfly-style larva worm. And if you shoot a rabbit or kill a rabbit with those in it, you, you're not going to want to eat it. Just when you see it, uh, it will pretty much nauseate you to the point that unless you're in starvation mode. One more thing I have to say that I don't want to say, but I have to say it because I know one of you is going to say it and you're going to piss me off and I want you to get this out of your freaking head. No, if he eats lots of rabbits, he won't die of rabbit starvation. One more time. No, if he eats lots of rabbits or anybody eats lots of rabbits or I eat lots of rabbits or you eat lots of rabbits or anybody on the planet eats lots of rabbits, it will not kill them. It will not kill them. One more freaking time, assholes. It will not kill them. It will not kill them. I need to do a freaking video and explain the nutrition behind this. Rabbit starvation was caused by people that were in the mountains starving, eating rabbits that were starving and nothing else, and they were getting absolutely no fat in their diet. The American diet today 
Even if you ate a rabbit a day, you're going to get plenty of fat and plenty of other nutrition. And stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop. And please do me a favor. Anywhere you see anybody bring it up in a forum or a video or anywhere, this rabbit starvation shit, comment and call it a myth. Call it for what it is. Please stop this. I mean, I can't tell you how much it bugs me. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Ann from the forum. A uh, question for you. While looking for a secondary location, possibly out in rural areas, how do you figure out the water quality um, underground if you're going to dig a well? Granted, if there is rain, the above-ground water is going to be uh, affected by, of course, water runoff. But the water that is underground, how do you figure out the water quality of what you might get if you dig a well? Thanks for your time, Jack. Love the show. Honestly, in most wells that you would put in for real use, like long-term use for you're going to build a house or have a homestead or something like that, the depth of the well is going to be such that it, the, the rain is actually going to have very little effect. And the, the uh, surface, uh, you know, first couple feet of, uh, of topsoil and, and subsoil is going to have very little effect whatsoever on the water that's actually being pumped out of the water table. Uh, you're going down to an aquifer level, and it may be uh, an aquifer that's frequently recharged, but it's being recharged through so many layers and levels and from so many sources that the water that you see fall on your property is is never going to be the water that you drink. It just can't get down that deep. It gets taken up. It gets transpired. It goes into runoff. The water's coming from other sources where the water has more time to percolate down. That very active percolation makes the majority of water that's down in an aquifer level safe for drinking as is. There are areas with, with um, contamination Uh, due to radioactivity, uh, pollutants in the ground. There's areas where there are problems with methane gas in the water table. Uh, those are all things to look out for. Of all of them, agricultural contamination with, uh, I can't remember the particular bacteria that's very common in places where there's a lot of agriculture, specifically with manure, uh, but it's actually about... I think 800 bucks is what I had to pay for one on a well. It's a UV light, and uh, it, it basically, as the water comes out of your well, it passes through this UV spectrum, and it kills it deader than a doornail, and it's no problem whatsoever. There could be other problems with high concentrations of certain minerals. Uh, there are certain places where natural fluoride concentrations are too high. Uh, so how do you know this if there's not a well? Well, generally speaking, The, the the way that people visualize things is far and away not the way that they are. They think of their house, and then underneath their house, there's this little pocket of water that they're going to suck water from, like it's like a giant underground swimming pool. Well, it's not. It's more like a really big underground lake. So the guy that lives a mile away from you and the guy that lives a mile in the other direction and the guy that lives a half mile to the west, uh, even if your neighbors are that far away that already has a well, The water he's pumping is going to be very similar, if not identical, to the water you're pumping. It's not guaranteed it's going to be exactly the same, but it's probably the same source. And if it's any major problems, they should be known. So checking with your local extension agency for that area, checking with people that already live there uh, for water quality is going to go a long way to alleviating the concerns that you have. There still is no way to ever guarantee exactly what water quality is going to be that comes out of a well in the area until you until you put a well in and pump it. The best thing you can probably do is anywhere you're considering buying land, you're going to want to know anyway what the cost is going to be. Find people that locally that do wells 
and ask, what would it cost to put a well in here? Because the cost is a huge component of this as well. How deep do you generally have to go? And what's the water quality like in the area? Those guys that drill wells for a living, they know the answer to those three questions. With that and your local uh, extension agency, you can buy land with a reasonable expectation of the cost and the fact that you're going to be able to get good quality water. There's very little that could possibly be in water pulled from an aquifer depth that can't be filtered out in some way, shape, or form. So if it's common to have whatever that bacteria was that we had in our water in Pennsylvania, again, it was $800. bucks. would have been good to know when I bought the house. But let me tell you a secret, guys. <laughs> There's another way to do this. Not a good way, but it's the way that people dump houses sometimes and make sure they pass the water quality test. And I'm pretty sure that's what the people that sold this house to us did. You basically spike the well with chlorine bleach. So you just dump a bunch of chlorine bleach down the well, get the prime back, get it pumping, and run, turn the faucet on and run the shit out of it. And the chlorine levels drop, but it just dead kills all the surrounding, right where that wellhead is coming out in the bottom, right where your, your, your bottom of your pump or your, uh, your bottom of your well is. It basically, you know, sanitizes that water temporarily. And if you do that like a day before your test, you'll probably pass. So, um, that's what they did to us. So we had the water tested, uh, later just out of a, a curiosity standpoint. And uh, that's when we learned about this technique because the guy's like, well, are you selling a house? And this guy actually told us how to do it to get the house sold. To get it, and we're like, no, no, we're going to drink this. We, you know, we're concerned with this. Uh, then there's other things like just taste quality. So a lot of times you have like sulfur taste to water. There's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't make the water very appealing to drink. So something like a Berkey system, and, and that's the other thing. You know, most of the things that you would have to worry about with water, a Berkey system will take care of and make your water taste better if you don't have the quality that you're looking for, or even you know a pitcher. Um, one of you like the Brita's or something like that. I think it's an expensive way to go. Um, but if you just want the water to taste better, they do a good job of that. So there you go. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I was listening the other day to when you had uh, a speaker comment about Cody's how to cook mice and squirrels and other small rodents, and got me thinking on all the PDFs that I have downloaded on different survival techniques and whatnot. But what do I do if I can't have a computer operates. Um, what if I can't generate all that power? And I was wondering what your thoughts are on like Kindle and um, other e-paper devices, which are much more low power. that could be charged by a hand or a low power charging device. And if that's not a worthwhile investment um, to put all these PDFs on, um, my thought is I can't print all these out. It would cost too much in ink and paper and take up too much space. But maybe that's a uh, decent, somewhat long-term solution. Just wanted your thoughts on uh, moving all your library, digital library, into a e-reader for a. Um, yeah, I'm going to call you back on this one. Sorry, bro. Well, the short answer there is the Kindle is turnkey. It does uh, allow native PDF support. Basically, for those that have not ever used a Kindle. The way that you do that is when you get your Kindle and you set up your account with Amazon, you set up a private email address that's hidden so that people can't spam your Kindle, basically. And you can change that email address anytime you want to if somebody were to get a hold of it and do something jerky to you, like publish it and cause you grief. But then all you do is send an email to yourself and attach the PDF, and it goes to your Kindle, and it's there until you take it off. 
And uh, Kindle can hold an awful lot of PDFs and a lot of books to go with that. And uh, it is very convenient. It's very easy to read. What I love about the Kindle, now I'm not talking about the Fire. I'm not talking about the full-color new one. I'm talking about all the other ones that are black and white. What's beautiful about them is how easy it is to read the screens, even in like where there's bright sunlight and all. And they are very low power draw. They, they last an incredibly long time on a single charge. And they don't have a lot of power requirements. So, so charging one would be easy with something as simple as like, let's say, a vehicle adapter. Uh, and you would have all of that stuff available to you. So that's one way. Another way would it be to build a, um, emergency computer kit, uh, based on something that's low power like a netbook. And putting together all the peripherals to go with it and data and external drives and thumb drives and things like that. And you could charge that netbook from a simple uh, vehicle inverter or something like that as well. Or even charge it with solar if you wanted to go that far. Uh, MD Creekmore did a great post on doing uh, an emergency computer kit on the survivalistblog.net. And I'll include a link in today's show notes. So that the, the advantage of that well, it would be, one, you'd have a lot more uh, memory capacity. And you could expand the memory capacity with USB thumb drives. So you can go to Walmart and buy a USB 4-gig thumb drive for about 10 bucks. You can go buy a cheap 8-gig one for like... I don't know, $14, $15. So every, and a Kindle generally has about 8 gig of memory. So you can add an entire Kindle's memory capability by adding one $15 part. You want to go get something that's really good quality and dependable. I recommend the Corsair Survivor Drive. Uh, and you get an 8 gig one of those for about 20 bucks and it's in this little tube. It's watertight. You could honestly use it as an impact weapon. I, I, I have one and I really should do a video with it. I, I, of breaking some boards with it as an impact tool. Uh, some standard boards like you would break in a martial arts class uh, just to show its, its, its ruggedness and durability. Uh, you, can, you, know, you, you can encrypt those with TrueCrypt as well. Uh, you can encrypt the computer with TrueCrypt. But the computer then brings all this other functionality, all this other capability. And if you are somewhere where Internet access available is, you have it. With the Kindle, you do have... Uh, 3G wireless, and you can buy books and stuff like that, uh, and you can access your archives and all, but that, in, you know, it has to be available, where with computer, you have so much more memory, you can keep more. So it's one or the other, but I like the Kindle, I have one, I, I, I just really, if that's your intent, low power consumption, uh, the, the older, less expensive models are better than the Fire for that. The Fire is more of like a, an iPad competitor. And it's going to be much more high draw on the power. And it doesn't have the ability to sit out beside a pool in the sunlight and read it without a big glare on the screen. Where the, that, That's what, to me, what they need to do with the Kindle is come up with a colored version that's almost like a Technicolor thing, like, you know, like a graphic online or something instead of like a real picture uh, where you, you can get colors and shades and all, but keep that, that what they call digital ink, uh, keep that, that capability because, to me, it's just awesome. Or come up with a full-color one that has a setting that turns it into that. I, I don't know. Um, but I think that they're both good options. But then I want to caution you guys with one thing here. When we start talking about, well, if the shit is the fan, I've got this big library of books on how to gut a rabbit and build a lean-to. and Man, if that's your plan, start working on your skills now. That's all great information to have. It's all great information to have as a fallback, but... 
If you think that in a stressful situation and you've just killed a rabbit that you're going to have time to like find the book and look it up and here's how you make your incisions and here's how you pull the hair back and I mean guys that's that's in the world of fantasy right along with Mad Max. If you want to be prepared from a skill standpoint all these resources and PDFs and ebooks are great but they're only kind of a library of knowledge to fall back on, they can't be your primary plan. And if you actually needed it to get something done, it's going to be very difficult for you to get it done. The real reason to preserve that knowledge that way to me is that in a total collapse, it could be used as the basis as a library to kind of rebuild an entire community around. But from an individual standpoint without other people to help you, the skills you have are going to be the skills you have when whatever goes down goes down. So work on them now. Learn to do this stuff now. Um, and, and realize that a lot of these things, if you've never done, they're not that hard. First time you do it, you might mess it up a little bit and lose some meat and what have you. So do it now when it's not critical and losing, you know, the, you know, some of the meat off the squirrel doesn't really matter. And the next time you'll do a little better job and the next time you'll do a little better job. But, you know, I just, when I hear stuff like that, it makes me think back to being, you know, a 12 year old kid again. Did I learn how to skin a squirrel from a PDF? No. I had an uncle that said, look, here, there's two ways to do it. The first way I'll show you to do it is, is from the, the, the legs down, and then the next way is from the neck up. And then my grandfather said, ah, your uncle's an idiot. Look, cut him across the back, and you do. And I learned three ways to skin a squirrel by having people that knew how to do it show me. And, and then there's videos today where we can learn this, but don't just want, you know, save the video. Go out and do it. Now, The beauty of this would be, hey, there's a lot of software to strip videos off of YouTube. If you did uh, MD Creekmore's emergency kit, you could have a lot of entertainment and education value, sort of with movies and stuff like that as well, a low-power device. Um, I think we have a netbook somewhere that was my wife's that got some kind of weird virus or something on it that I may just go install Linux on it, actually, and, and build up a kit similar to what he did and see if I can't improve on it a little bit. If I do, I'll definitely share the details of how I did that with you. Uh, with that, we do have things wrapped up for today. Again, it is Friday for you, but it was Wednesday for me. I'm currently at the Liberty Forum, and I'll remind you one more time. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, you can join the MSB for $30 for your first year. Uh, discount code is Liberty, all lowercase. You can use the form for that. Again, it will only be here on the air that you will hear that. And with that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
body of flesh.